0: How hard can it be up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time? My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap. Check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. Uh, This week, my guest is Steve Kokinos, founder and CEO of Fuse a unified communications platform that improves business productivity by integrating voice, video, and always-on collaboration into a global cloud-based service and all-in-one app people actually want to use. Under Steve's leadership, Fuse has become one of the hottest and most highly regarded startups in Boston, creating the unified communications-as-a-service market and transforming the way enterprises view communications as a key driver of business visibility, process improvement, and results. Before Fuse, Steve was a founder of BladeLogic, a company that took public at $17 a share before it was acquired by BMC Software for $28, which would be more. And uh, uh, WebYes, an early market leader in the web hosting and application service provider space acquired by Breakaway Solutions in advance of their IPO in uh, 1999. If you're keeping score at home, that means Steve is three for three. Uh, and we spent the first part of our conversation talking about what he's learned along the way from startup through product market fit and scale. Uh, in our second segment, Steve and I discussed the proliferation of apps and fragmentation of communications channels that's ironically making it harder for all of us at work and at home to connect with each other. Uh, just think about how many messaging and communications apps you have spread across your laptop, tablet, and smartphone right now. Then about that big, dumb piece of plastic that's probably sitting on your desk at work And all the time, energy, and effort we're wasting collectively, trying and failing to get the right info in the right context to the right person right now. A few solves that problem in a rather elegant way, of course, but having spent the last decade or so reflecting on how to help people and companies communicate more effectively, Steve's got some great insight on the problem, where we are in solving it, and what comes next. Okay, Hard Hard Can It Be is sponsored, as always, by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now, my conversation with Steve Kokinos. With me today is Steve Kokinos. How are you doing, Steve? Great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate you uh, coming in today. Uh, so want to get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Andover, Mass, so not that far from here. Not too far. And uh, big family, small family? Uh, relatively small family. I have one sister who's uh, four years younger than I am. So you're the elder sibling? I am. And typical dynamic there with your little sister? For sure. Yeah. She's pretty feisty. Yeah? <laughs> she's she's a rebel, is she, or just the, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So uh, you went to high school in in, in Andover? Uh, yep, I went to Phillips Andover. Oh, sure.
1: And uh, it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I think for sure it was a place where uh, you get exposed to a lot of smart people in one place.
0: Was that kind of if you grow up in Andover, is that where you go, or or is no. that yeah yeah uh, no I it,
1: and what's you know what's funny there is it's a place where people come from all over the world. We just happen I just happen to drive by it every day. Yeah, and so you know it was really fortunate. I don't uh, I don't think. Um, that's an opportunity that would have come up if, if I hadn't lived there.
0: We're we're looking at, at uh, schools like that for my uh, younger son, and um, it's a big it's a big decision. I mean, as a parent now looking at through that lens, as someone who went there, uh, you know, sounds like you had a positive experience and an enriching one.
1: Yeah, for sure, it was the most meaningful academic experience I had um, over the course of my life. How did it change you? Do you think?
0: Um, I think you learn.
1: Sort of the value of work. I think it's a place where you really have to put in the time, right? And you're rewarded for putting in the time. And I think the other part is, uh, it's a group of people where there's sort of accountability with your peers, and uh, it's not cool to, you know, not do your best there. And I think when you have a lot of smart people in one place who are all really trying to do well and uh, expand their horizons, it's you know an interesting dynamic that develops, right? And you know more than that, I keep in touch with. You know, a huge number of people I went to school
0: there, so it's a real shared experience. Right, it's uh, people tend to break up into folks who have their sort of life friends from high school and people who have their life friends from college. With you, is it more the more the former or is uh, it both? It's a little of both,
1: yeah, for sure. But I, you know, I definitely would say that uh, networking wise and keeping in touch, like uh, people from my or the group of people from high school, um, are better about keeping in touch.
0: Right, where'd you go to college?
1: Uh, McGill University in Montreal.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. You're the second McGill alum. Uh, Dino De Palma is actually a McGill. That's right. Um, and uh, have, how did you decide on Canada?
1: Um, well, I thought one, a change of scenery would be nice. Yeah. I didn't really want to go abroad, uh, but that seemed like some sort of middle ground. But the sort of bigger part of it is I studied music in school and uh, originally played guitar, and that's what I went there to study, mm-hmm. uh, but was also doing electronic music before it was fashionable. And... Uh, they had a big computer music program back then, which was actually pretty nitty gritty. Uh, these things just weren't didn't exist the same way they do now. Right, uh, and so went there and and spent a couple years working on music. Decided I didn't really want to be a starving artist for my whole life, and ended up starting my first company when I was a junior in college.
0: Well, before we leave the music thing, because that's yeah. unusual, right? I mean, this is sort of the, uh, I'm thinking of like Herbie Hancock, Thomas Dolby, like... Uh, <laughs> was it that kind of stuff? Devo stuff? Or what What, what kind of music was it? Uh, well, so I played classical
1: guitar, um, which was kind of one discipline. Wow. But electronic music was more, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time writing music and, and this sort of stuff, and it was more, um, uh, you know, kind of like alternative Kind of stuff.
0: I have to ask: Do you have any recordings of stuff that you've done?
1: I have some old recordings somewhere, uh, but I, when I decided, I just, you know, I, I spent like probably nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine hours uh, playing music, <laughs> and <laughs> not just sort of a go on one-yard line of proficiency, right. and yeah. I, I, you know, I'm sort of a go hard or go home guy, and uh, I, yeah. I put it down and then sort of left it all. And,
0: right. Um, and what what drove you from it in the end? Was it just the financial, the lifestyle? What was it? Uh, I think lifestyle was part of it, but there is sort of a different truth
1: that emerges when you really start to dig in on music. I think it's really thought of as this very creative, uh, kind of interesting um, world that you're in, where I I think the reality is, especially performance, um, is very much about... Uh, kind of practice and repetition and I think as you get deeper into things like music theory and composition uh it kind of takes a lot of the creativity and the fun out of it right and it becomes uh you know a very different discipline and so you know I just felt that as I got deeper into it I sort of enjoyed those elements less and you know just didn't really feel like I could do that for my whole life.
0: Have you seen Mozart and the Jungle? I have. I love that show.
1: It's a good show. I'm yeah. fascinated
0: by the the uh, Gael Garcia Bernal car- character. And, He's
1: that's a great character. Um,
0: just I lie, <laughs> um, you know. Love that show, uh, and it also I love that it's uh, you know like you watch The Bachelor, or whatever. You feel dirty after. Like I, after I watch that show, I feel kind of elevated by, by the art of it, you know. Uh, for sure, I think that. You know,
1: the reality is that his like job is sort of glorified. Sure. I think what they don't show, and this is the, true with any sort of high-profile thing, is they're not showing all the hundreds and hundreds of hours sure. uh, that a person like that is Although
0: you that. get a sense of it with Haley. Yeah. The, the level of craft and dedication... Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like in the first season they sort of covered that yeah. and then moved on, right? Because we want to watch that. <laughs> for sure they moved on. Um, I think the first season was more interesting
1: for it. Than yeah, the, yeah the I agree. One.
0: I agree. All right, so when did this this epiphany and this tipping point into the, uh, the, the more commercial end of things, when did that happen?
1: I guess sort of after my second year in college. And, I, you know, I, I sort of came to that conclusion. And part of the conclusion mm-hmm. was um, because... You know, electronic music was still in its infancy and in order to sort of engage you had to get pretty deep into the computing aspect of it right. and so part of the stuff we had to learn was computer programming and get really into there and so I, I sort of felt like well, if we are going to spend all this time on computers and less time on music we may as well go learn about computers more because that seems important
0: Did you shift your major while you were in school? I did, yeah Right.
1: I, did. I ended up with an economics degree that was just the path of least resistance to sure. get a degree uh, but the other was I did an internship at Fidelity uh, one summer right as the internet was sort of emerging huh. and I just landed in a place where I had a bunch of servers at my disposal and figured out how to set up web servers and infrastructure. And it was a time when nobody knew anything about any of that, uh, you know, I think of late 95. Right. I quit my summer job at Fidelity and started my first company, which was WebYes. And so sort of the story there is I started with um, a friend from high school and he was at Penn in uh, Philly and I was in McGill and we sort of each brought kind of a few people but we had already sort of decided that we would do it in Boston right? and built our first data center in Kendall Square and operated it kind of remotely for the first while and then when everyone graduated we all moved down and uh, our first office was uh, yeah in Kendall Square we we subletted space from Biogen and our first data center was uh, if you know where Mead Hall is sure if you kind of go into Four Cambridge Center into the lobby if you go around the security desk there's the vending machine room uh, that was our data center it was a janitor's closet that they wow. rented to us and we convinced you know worldcom to run fiber into that room and you know ended up being a whole you know, Odyssey from there.
0: It's hard to um, communicate to people who didn't experience it. That was right in the backwash of the Netscape IPO, and That's right. things were really crazy. Yeah. In that in that window, there's a book about it called Burn Rate, which I don't know if you've read, but uh, I haven't read that. I'll let you borrow it, but it, it really captures the essence of that time and the energy where it was almost like if you if you could, like you had to go start a company that related to this.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I I remember, you know, we were kind of sitting around. Uh, and, you know, at this, by this point, we had sort of learned much about infrastructure. And it was a time when people didn't know how to set up routers or anything like right. this. Uh, and uh, we couldn't figure out how the Yahoo guys were going to make any money. And we're like, how is that yeah. <laughs> listing of sites? I remember that on yeah. the Akabono server at Stanford. Yeah, exactly. Oh. But we we just figured that someone was going to have to pay to host all this stuff. And that that was a place where you could generate revenue for sure. And I think what was funny about that time, that would be hard to do now, is we we didn't want to get stuck in what looked like it would be a commodity market eventually. Right. So uh, we saw like on and people were all every, all these companies, even Netscape and you know others, Sun were trying to figure things out. So just a random director from Sun had been posting in this message board about um, you know web posting and whatnot. And so I just called the guy up and said, hey, do you need anyone to host and manage your new app servers uh, for your customers? And they were like, holy cow, you could do that? And we ended up building eight data centers around the world uh, for them because they ended up having us do all of the um, Star Office and Java downloads and pushing enormous amounts of bandwidth back at the time. You couldn't actually buy enough bandwidth in one place to service their customers, so we right. had to buy bandwidth all over.
0: In that team, reflecting back, you know, usually you have sort of the technical guy and the sales guy. Which, which were you? Well, I'm sort of both a technical guy
1: and a sales guy. I think I end up taking on the sales role because, uh,
0: you know, I think not many technical people have. Because you're happy to pick up the phone. Yeah. I think you're somewhat unique in that respect. Yeah, I
1: think that's, look, I I think one of the things that any founder kind of needs to, to be, and look, there's different archetypes, but at least for me is I feel like you need to be sort of the most versatile person Sure. and the company because you need to be able to just do what needs to be done at yeah,
0: the time. We used to say, you're the VP of whatever it takes. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Um,
0: so um, what was the outcome of that business and what did you learn from it?
1: Uh, so we sold uh, to a company called Breakaway Solutions.
0: Yeah, sure. I remember that. In, uh, we were a strategic internet services company. That's right. In the Scient viant
1: era. That's right. Yeah. That's right, for sure. Uh, so early 2000, about six months before they went public, um, <laughs> you know, I learned that companies can be bought. Because yeah. I met with their CEO, you know, and I was a 23-year-old guy, 22. Yeah. Uh, then I think I was 23 when we got acquired. Uh, and he's like, hey, have you thought about merging with us? We think it would be interesting. We're going to build a big company here. And, you know, I had to kind of play it cool and said, well, we'll think about it and go back and ask some people if that was even.
0: Right, what are, people did. How does that work? What sure. do you do about that?
1: And so long story short, they ended up acquiring us. And was a real exciting time. Uh, you know, the company grew from you know 100 people to a thousand people in a in a year, um, was meteoric rise, meteoric fall like so many companies back then. Moonshot, yeah, yeah for sure. But uh, interesting experience, definitely, and you know I think really kind of set the tone for the rest of my career. I, you know met a lot of really great people. Um, from there, left with um, a few other folks that had had their companies acquired as well, and was one of the co-founders of Blade Logic afterward. And, you know, the idea behind that was, you know, as the hosting business grew and became more complicated at Breakaway, there weren't a lot of tools to kind of manage and automate what was going on. And there's a lot of stuff that automates. There's a lot of ways to automate uh, data centers today. Um, but back then, it was kind of a novel concept. And so uh, we were sort of the first wave of that.
0: Right. You know, um there was a guy on the West Coast named Bill Campbell. They called him Coach. He was a really prominent guy, not least because he ended up – he was the CEO of Intuit, but he was on the boards of both Google and Apple and was considered like a confidant and mentor to everyone from jobs to Sergey and Larry. And The guy was like an incredible human being, and he coached Pee Wee football out there. He was like a larger-than-life character, and I, I ended up meeting him at one point. It's a long story. But um, one of the things that he always said was that, that the difference between East Coast and West, West Coast entrepreneurs was – Um, What's what's typical on the East Coast because of the universities, perhaps, is you have people and they have an idea or they have a solution and they go out and they look for a problem. They're trying to, quote unquote, monetize some capability. Whereas he felt that on the West Coast, it was more common to, you know, work at a big company, become intimate with a problem and then go build a company that solved it. And he had a strong preference for the latter as a model. And it and sounds like that's exactly what Blade Logic was, is, is you had been, you know, dealing with some big customers and you saw, you know, a problem yeah. and uh, built a company to go solve it. You know, I'm curious, like, it, you know, what do you, how do you think about those two schools and, and are you in one camp or the other? I think of it a little bit differently. Um, I think that if you look at the East
1: Coast companies, there haven't been that many big wins here, I think there's been, and I think there are a lot of reasons behind it. I think if you look, there's a lot more, you know, kind of doubles and triples, um, but we've had fewer sort of what, big home runs. Right. Uh, and so I the thing that I, I do believe is the case, and maybe it's that dynamic of kind of a solution in search of a problem versus the other way around is the reason why. But I think if you look out in the Valley, it seems there are people who are um, trying to, maybe solve bigger problems because they're framing it that way right and are willing to really try to take it all the way right and so i think that's something that we need more of here on the east coast
0: amen um
1: all right
0: so blade logic became a pretty big company
1: yeah uh became a pretty big company uh went public and then was acquired by
0: bmc software yeah. uh afterward for about uh 800 million right and i saw and i saw it come for you great and w- what year was that Uh, It was around 2000, you know, 2006, 2007. Right. All right. So um, you walk away and and when you are you know, you've had a couple of nice exits, uh, nice outcomes. What is your um, what's your sort of process when you wrap something up? Is the next has the next thing been sort of obvious to you each time or do you lie fallow for a while? Do you tour the tour the world? What do you how do you kind of charge your batteries when you're done with something? (laughs) Uh, I've never taken any meaningful time off ever because, yeah, every
1: time something finishes, there was some spark that, like, got an idea going and the next thing, and then you just kind of roll into it. Right. Uh, And I think, you know, whenever you feel passionately about something, you just want to kind of go do it. Sure. Uh, And I've never, you know, really stopped to, to take the time off. What I will say is that there was always something from whatever the last one was that, kind of has led me to the conclusion that the next one is the right thing to do right and i think moving from say data center infrastructure to communications was a big shift uh but some of the problems that we're solving today we just saw as problems even just as we grow our own business and we're like geez well if we have these problems there's got to be a better way than all these like crappy legacy tools that are
0: out there right right they they say that um in In spouses and in presidents, the uh, the next one is always a reaction to whatever was wrong with the last one. <laughs> um I guess it's true of companies as well. I think so. a little there's a little bit of that. You know, the other though is
1: I would say for me, whenever I've looked at starting a new company, uh, you get an idea, but then you have to sort of figure out if the idea is good or not. Yeah. And um, a lot of that or at least a lot of the vetting the way I've done it, is from talking to people, talking to people who might be prospective customers and other um, just sort of, uh, you know, people who can help offer some good perspective. And I find that at some point, either you figure out that there's a fatal flaw or you figure out that there isn't a fatal flaw and then you just go do it.
0: Right. What are you listening for? You know, because people, you know, it's human nature to want to say, Oh, interesting idea, like that word, yeah. that non-committal word, or like, what do you, you know, in that conversation, in that exchange, you know, what Steve Blank calls the customer development process, you know, what are you, what are you looking for to hear to say, okay, I'm going to go do this? I, look, I think anytime
1: you go talk to people, whether you're a serial entrepreneur or it's your first time, they're going to say, well, geez, are you sure you want to get into that? I think this is bad for reasons X, Y, and Z. Right. So I'm not really worried about that sort of thing. What you really want to hear is if you're, like, going to talk to a customer or something is I wouldn't, like I would never buy what you're gonna do because right. it makes no sense for these reasons. Right, it's those sorts of of things where you really get concrete feedback. I think the more amorphous, are you sure you feel good about it and all that. Like you can make those decisions yourself. Right. Uh, but it tends to be when you get more probing and people have probing discussions with you. Are you uncovering something that would be like make you realize is it technically infeasible? Does the market not really exist the way you thought it did? Um you know, is, is there some other reason why competitive dynamics would suggest that it just can't be done or shouldn't be done? You know, right. those sorts of things. And so there's sort of a mental checklist that you know, I always go through and look, I've only done it a few times in my life, but spent, you know, I think spent more time at, at that end of it with small companies than big ones. And so you know, I think really making sure that you've kind of vetted it out to a point um, is the right thing. But then on the flip side, I see a lot of people who talk about wanting to be entrepreneurs and are effectively kind of afraid to ever pull the trigger. I think you sort of need to know whether you're really prepared to do that or not.
0: Yeah. Um, you haven't done it a lot, but you've done it very well. And, and so that, you know, the other dynamic, in the, in, as I reflect on my experiences at that, at that stage, is, is you, there's sort of this tug of war between conviction and flexibility. Yeah. Meaning that, like, there are certain aspects of the idea where you, they're just non-negotiable and you got to stick to it and you got to you know you're kind of drawing a sharpie around the inner sanctum and you're not going to mess with that but if you envisioned it as a red one and and you know six prospective customers tell you they'll only buy it if it's blue then you got to make it blue for sure so how do you how do you you know how do you figure out what's in the box of untouchables and what you're willing to be flexible about as you as you refine your concept uh, you know look I, I i don't think there's any magic to it but i
1: do think uh, instinctively figuring those things out and knowing kind of when to listen to customers and knowing when not to. Look, I think a lot of that is what separates sort of good entrepreneurs from bad ones. And uh, to me, I, I think one of the things that I've observed that happened in kind of every case is that there was always some pivot point early on where you you never really completely realized whatever the original vision was, but you realize that that's not really the thing that's going to take you to victory. Right, and you're not completely changing the business, but you decide to really focus in on, on some other aspect than you originally uh, bet on. And I think that's a difficult choice to make. And I, I think there's a you know, and, and it's sort of one that you have to get the rest of your team over the hump on because I think when people are heads down in one direction, to kind of say, you know what, we're going to just not do that anymore. Yeah. We're going to go in this other direction because that's really what the customers are telling us and what we hear and yeah. why people are buying. Uh, but every, you know, in all three instances, for me, like that happened, and we were able to kind of pivot in the right direction, and then ultimately that turned out to be the
0: right one. Yeah, I hate that word pivot. I, um, it just it trivializes something that's so wrenching and painful. And and uh, yeah, and look, I, when I say pivot, at least for me, yeah. it's not
1: like we were making you know, cars and now we're making, sure. Yeah. Now we're making, uh, solar panels. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I'd say it's always been a subtlety in the business, uh, either product market fit or, you know, approach to market or, or changing the way we think about the product.
0: Right. That early phase is really, it is a process of, uh, you know, I say you're corrupting your vision with the external reality. Yeah, um, and that's it, right. it is incremental, you know, when it's, when it's done mm-hmm. properly, but it's, it's hard. It's hard. Well, but in the end, if you don't have any customers willing to pay you, then you're never going to end up with much of a business. Yeah, so. even then, Even if it's hard to do, it's easy to decide. Yeah. Um, all right, so where did the idea for thinking phones come from? Uh, well, you know, I, I think one of the things, if you look at
1: sort of the early Internet days, that was sort of very disruptive. If you look at data center automation, that was sort of a, an outgrowth of the fact that um, there was all this complexity. And uh, communications was always something that I found... Just sort of intellectually interesting. Uh, You know, I said earlier, I think one of the things I've never been afraid in my career is to pick up the phone and talk to people. And you just look at how disjointed it is to communicate or has been historically. You know, people are trying to decide do I use an audio conference? Do I call you on the phone? I don't even know how to use this video conferencing thing in in my office. Uh, And as you get bigger, you just see that those problems get more and more complicated and expensive. And took a step back and just looked at the market and said, you know, holy cow, there's 400 million users. That consume products that are all 20-year-old technology, and we don't see any of the legacy vendors moving quickly to try and change it. And so it was just sort of a combination of it being something that was seemed both technically and and you know uh, intellectually interesting. And I think the, the stuff that you you like to kind of figure out on your own is often a kind of good proxy for something you might be. Excited to do as a business, right? And so I'd been sort of tinkering around with it, and then you know we started to dig into what the market looked like, and and thought you know holy cow there you know there could be a real something
0: real here. So you ended
1: up with something that was pretty close to that original vision. I mean, yeah, I that's know. what's I'd say the craziest thing. You know, because we started well, Fuse was originally thinking phones, and we started ten years ago. Right. Uh, you know, the vision was that legacy communication systems across sort of this whole spectrum, whether it's phone systems or video conferencing or whatnot, um, basically are the last vestige of this bygone era of proprietary hardware and software and systems. Right. And our view was if you move that into the cloud, you then have an opportunity to integrate with you know, all the other applications that are that moving to the cloud and you could create just something fundamentally different. And I don't think that, that vision hasn't really changed much. I think we've made an enormous amount of progress on actually executing on it and and building um, something that frankly is kind of beyond what we would have originally imagined right uh but yeah i think it, it shows you that some of these legacy markets take a long time to really move in a meaningful way and in fact uh, 2016 uh, is the year that crm is more than 50 percent in the cloud right which is what crazy to me because you would assume that it's all in the cloud and salesforce on the Sure, all yeah uh, but it's not and so i think you know e- even today communications is you know broadly 10% you know migrated to the cloud so it's early days and i think it's because uh, what we we found this early on is so much of how people communicate ties back to human nature and people really become very attached to the way they interact with their tools and so really understanding the user experience and understanding how to get people from The things they use today, like their phone on their desk or WebEx into a more modern solution and make it seamless for them. You know, I think that's been a big part of what we figured out um, over the years.
0: Right. Um, Fuse got pretty far down the runway before you guys decided to raise money is my impression. So, you know, when is the right time to raise money? If you're talking to an entrepreneur and you're helping them think through that question, how do you think about it and, and what advice do you have for them?
1: Well, I think it depends, right? I think if you're you know, there's. Uh, we were fortunate and that we had had some prior successes, so we were able to kind of self-fund through what would have been the first couple rounds of financing. Right. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we were in business for about four, four or five years before we took any money um, of substance, and we did our first institutional round in uh, 2012. Um, I think at the same time, you kind of have to look at what kind of business you're in. If you're in a services business where there's not necessarily a lot of technology, then you can probably use revenue to to drive a lot of your growth. Right. Uh, if you have there's just some things where factually you got to build a whole bunch of technology before you can even think about talking to a customer.
0: Was there a big platform and infrastructure investment to get? to get underway in here, or was it pretty capital efficient to get to that first couple of customers? We were pretty capital efficient to
1: get to the first few customers. I think we were able to build in early days off of um, some open source stacks that existed uh, and then sort of build and evolve our software around that. And so that gave us the opportunity to kind of get out into the market relatively quickly, really hear what customers wanted, um, and then build our platform from there. But you know, over the years, uh, you know, we've built a
0: pretty sizable platform. Sure. Well, it's, it's a rocket ship now and um, very well thought of in the community. You guys have really um, – you're always on the list of like the you know, the next big thing or the whatever. <laughs> sort of overnight success of whatever, yeah, ten, 10 years year of effort. 10-year overnight success. Yeah. Um, you know, talk a little bit about the challenges of that next phase. So now, now you're really – you're in the scale phase of growing the business, right? You kind of formulated the product. You got a platform that works. Um, you know, what, what's that like? It's, it's very different from the beginning, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, listen, I'm
1: very fortunate to be in a position, I think any entrepreneur wants to um, build a company that starts to get to scale and and turns into something meaningful. Uh, But I think also, you know, being an entrepreneur means you spend most of your career in small companies, uh, more than big ones. And so it is definitely a different challenge. It's one that becomes uh, more of an operational challenge. I think once you know that you have product market fit, uh, once you have sort of the right strategy and and the right product in the market, um, then really it becomes about operating and executing well and, uh, you know, really scaling out the team, making sure you have the right people. Uh, And so there's, you know, there's sort of a different set of complexities that, uh, that exist there. And it's definitely... Uh, a different experience than you know some of the earlier
0: parts of, of starting a business. When you, you know, the people part of it, I think, is, is, is usually the most challenging, right? You know, For sure. You, because you're there's a there's a team that's gotten you to wherever you've gotten to to, to create these scale problems, right? And and some of those guys are going to make it, and some of them aren't. Um, guys in the gender neutral sense, um, you know, how what have you learned about how to make good hiring decisions in the face of scale challenges? Well, it's a couple of different things. I mean, one, I would say,
1: as you grow, there's sort of a few phases, at least that I've seen the companies go through. Uh, you know, a company that's uh, 100 people is different than one that's 20. Yeah. And I think as you go through e- each wave of transformation, um, there are often different people that sort of help you get to the next uh, the next place. Uh, you know, I think the value of a team and making sure that you have a team that can work well together yeah. uh, is really important. And you know, the the other thing I would say is when people aren't working out, uh, acting quickly to change it is really important. Right. Uh, and, and so I think that's sort of an ongoing uh, – it, it's not something that just ever ends. Sure. You know, it's something that you always have to be looking at and making sure that uh, not just the right – you know people working on stuff the right senior team you know all over the place and make sure that you've got the right group of people working together to get to the next level that you're trying to drive
0: the company yeah no good a good ceo is 80 percent dealing with people issues right because if you don't if you haven't built a team under you that uh that can go do all the other shit them you know on their own then you, then uh and even that's a people person people problem you know that in, in terms of those hiring decisions um You know, are you hiring for the company as it is today, the company in 90 days? Do you have a 12-month horizon? Like, how far forward do you think about, like, bringing someone in or is it variable, you know, as the company grows?
1: I think it's always you have to look at what the situation is at the time. I don't think you can ever – look, you can project way too far into the future. I think if you look, the things you have clear line of sight to are the things that are, you know, a year, 18 months, a couple years away. Uh, And I think you want people that have the benefit of experience – um, especially now, as we gear up and get closer to, um, you know, say thinking about an IPO, making sure that we have people that have experience in in bigger companies, and with that, uh, is can be really helpful. But you can also go too far, and you can bring someone, in and it's like a big company person too early, and it makes no sense because they don't understand that you have to roll up your sleeves in a in a startup and you know really get stuff done. So there's a mix. I, I think what I've found more than anything is, uh, you know, sort of. It depends on where the company's at. It depends on who the other people around the table are, uh, what the strengths and weaknesses are of the different executives are, and you know that that's sort of always what's kind of led me to the right conclusions about um, you know who we need, where there might be changes that are needed, and, and that sort of thing. There's no one magic answer. I think it's it's always you look at what the problems are of the company at the time, and you find the people who can best help solve those.
0: All right, so it's a time of great change in the way that we communicate. We were talking a little bit before we started today about um, you know how you know I'll send an email to my kids and they don't they don't never see it, um, <laughs> versus uh, the challenges of getting you know uh, a business like ours, which is a lot of people over forty, uh, to embrace you know social platforms as a way of sharing communication. Um, how is the way we communicate with each other changing? Um, and uh, what's the sort of, you know, state of, the, state of the state as we tip into 2017? Well,
1: I think there's a couple dynamics that are interesting going on right now. Uh, if you look historically, the way people communicate at work or the way people communicated at home or in their personal lives uh, sort of was a trickle down from the way people communicated at work. Whereas today it's the reverse; it's the way people communicate in their personal lives uh, that is starting to um, sort of trickle down into the ways people want to communicate at work. And part of that is as young people enter the workforce, you know, you're talking about your, your kids don't check their email. Um, you know, we see that all the time, and you know, messaging is a lot more prominent. Video. Uh, chat and messaging is is much more prominent now in people's personal lives, and you know as young people enter the workforce, they expect to just communicate the same way. Right. Uh, they don't. I think there is a different. Uh, I, I think when you and I entered the workforce, you kind of went to work and you were told what tools you used. I think today, um, people come into work expecting that that things are going to be easy to use and and you know very similar to the things they do outside of work.
0: Right. Uh, that's definitely true. I mean, I still remember like writing memos. Um, so um, I'm probably a little bit a little bit older. But uh, I started
1: like email. Like my, my career began as email was
0: like it was starting to happen. But but there were still certain occasions where you wrote a memo, and somebody typed it for you. I'm curious about about you know how do you think people decide where to go? I mean, at the end of the day, like I have something I want to say, and I. I find even myself, I'm thinking like, okay, do I, you know, is this an email? And I guess email is still my default. Uh, I don't know if that's a, how age specific that is, but, but like here we have, you know, Google Hangouts or we have, you know, part of it is just there's so much fragmentation. It's hard to decide, but, but how do you think people decide in which channel to communicate?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, we should get rid of Google Hangouts and have you guys using Fuse, <laughs> but <laughs> that's a different discussion. Uh, what we're seeing is there's sort of two fundamental rocks so one email is a big one for sure and i think what we've seen are seeing is that volume in email is tending to go down uh, but that people use email as a more formal way of communicating like if you're going to write something more substantive it tends to happen in email right i think if you're going to have quick messages it tends to be more Um, texting, whether one-on-one and in groups. Now, one of the things we've seen, uh, which is, I'd say, one of the fundamental problems we're uh, working to change, is that when people have to decide which tool to use when to communicate, it doesn't matter how good the individual tools are. uh, Just the fact that they have to decide that Um, makes it a bad experience. And it's sort of further complicated when you have to decide whether the person you want to talk to is inside or outside your company. You might communicate with them differently. And so for us, uh, a big part of the shift is in breaking down sort of those distinctions you, know, you should be able to talk to whoever you want whether they're inside or outside your company you should be able to communicate any way you want whether it's voice, video, messaging the fact that you're text messaging outside the company doesn't shouldn't matter to you you shouldn't even be able to tell the difference Right. Um, you should just be able to talk to whoever you want to however you want to what we're starting to see and I think you see this in um, for sure the consumer world uh, and now in some ways we're sort of bringing that to the work world is that um, people use messaging often, but they also start to when you break the barriers down between different types of communications, like I'll probably are inclined now to send someone a text and say, Hey, do you have time to talk? Versus the you know, the old days, whenever that was when you would just call people yeah. and either they answered they different or they answered or they didn't.
0: Yeah. And I, I used to I, I always hated that. I, I I I and I'm not I'm someone who does not enjoy talking on the phone. Like I love to talk to people in person. But I, I always felt like, and this is, I probably have some issues here, but I feel like when you're calling someone, you're kind of saying, I don't give a fuck what you're doing right now. I want to talk to you right now, right this second. You know what I'm saying? It's almost yeah. like, uh, it seems almost obnoxious to like. It does now, but I think
1: it didn't feel that way 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was the way if you needed to get a hold of someone quick, right. you did that. Now if you need to hold, get a hold of someone quickly, you send them a message. right. And so I think it, you know, the technology has evolved. And so I think people's view on sort of what's okay and what's not has changed also. So we've seen just across our customer base now sending a message. Asking if you want to, if you have time for a call, and then sort of hitting the button to jump into a conversation with someone is one of the most common use cases. You know, the other thing we're seeing is people will just sit in a group video call all day long with their peers, and they're actually group messaging with the same group of people. Right. And then every so often they'll look up, someone will say, "Hey, can you chime in?" And then there'll be a little bit of a discussion. People will go back. So it's I think more and more what you're starting to see is as you blur the lines between all these different tools that used to exist as individual
0: um,
1: applications, people start to consume, you know, consume things in a different way. Yeah. And we're already seeing that. I mean, I think that's where some of the traction that you see in a lot of the kind of social media tools and individual messaging, messaging tools come from is just that they make things seamless in a way that's really hard for old
0: technology to do. Right. It's an interesting confluence of technical capability and evolving social norms. Yeah, right. That affects behavior. Like, w- w- I'm curious. Like, what are, Have you gleaned any insights about people and the way that they talk to each other from from having like focused so intently on this for a decade? Yeah, there's interesting
1: conclusions that that you see. Um, one of the things we do is um, we create like heat maps for our customers, and you can see that often in a lot of companies, there's like a few people that end up being hubs of interaction, right. where like everything goes through those people, and there's this crazy disproportionate amount of activity. Um, the other is, you'd be surprised at, um, while we hear about email disappearing, and group messaging being exciting, and all these things, and we agree with all of that, um, we have a customer where the average user spends three hours a day listening to voicemail. Wow. And that's how they communicate. And so I think one of the things that gets lost, because if you go out to, you know, if you're in Boston or you're in Silicon Valley or wherever, um, we assume that all of these like really modern tools and experiences are what everybody uses. Right. But I think, you know, we've got a pretty broad view on the market and different types of companies. And I think the biggest thing we've seen is that um, two things. One is communication tools represent business process that... To dictate how people communicate with their customers right. and the second though is human nature plays into this uh, in a huge way people are used to using something and if you used the same tool for 20 years well you're not going to be necessarily jumping for joy to change the way you work right and uh, you know really kind of drawing the line between creating a brand new experience and you know helping those people understand kind of how they move into the modern world and giving them kind of a, a way to get there is really important. And I think that's one of the things that we've looked at. And some of this is sort of a divide around age. So obviously young people are, sure. are much more comfortable with things like group messaging and, and texting at work. Um, and it's not entirely age-based, but you need to find a way to be the bridge between the way people used to do things and the way people are doing it going forward. And I think that's, um, that's one of the things that, that we've seen uh, is that you do have different groups of people in different companies um, and I think this is true in people's personal lives as well, that are used to doing things a certain way and sort of keep wanting to keep doing it that way. And so finding a way to, like, help connect people that would ordinarily want to communicate in ways that are sort of um, opposite is uh, can be tricky. And so that's the, the interesting thing we've seen. And one of the things, when we track kind of user behavior, you know, that's one of the things we look for is, is people starting to, Starting to shift
0: away from some of the old patterns they have into new ones. Challenging to create to change behavior on that scale of a company, right? Yeah, for sure. And and so what is the what is the benefit of doing so when you look out across your customer set at business impact of adopting the platform and, and sort of institutionalizing saying here it is, like what are some high level like um, what, what what do I get as a customer that makes this managing this change worth it? Well,
1: at some basic level, uh, you can communicate with whoever you want in one place. It's really straight, it's really easy. The experience is completely modern and fresh. So, I mean, we see a lot of positive receptivity to that. So end users are getting, um, you know, just getting something better than they had before. The second part, though, is, you know, being able to integrate with the other, uh, cloud applications that people are investing in, you know, things like Salesforce or Workday or Zendesk, uh. We spend a lot of time thinking about uh, how you drive value for people in their work life. And, you know, you could ask me the question, well, what do I care about any of this? i just use my iPhone, right? Right. And why do we need anything at work? We can all just use our iPhones and call it a day. Sure. Uh, so the reality, though, is that there's all sorts of different data that lives inside of enterprises and most of that data is inaccessible to 80% of the people. So think about Salesforce. That's probably the most prolifically deployed. Uh, most organizations license that to 20% of their users. But the enterprise owns the data that lives in there. And getting some of that information to the other 80% um, can be really valuable. And so when you're searching for somebody you want to talk to, well, now we can search across all of these different databases and give access to institutional knowledge that exists inside um, a company but usually can't really be known by any of the people who work there. Um, Likewise, like if I'm calling you, uh, instead of just looking at a number and not being sure who it is, we can go figure out name, title, picture, company, recent interactions, interactions that other people in the company have had with you. And so now, you know, you're giving a much more complete picture. And so what we find is making communications sort of at the center of um, all of the other cloud apps that are people that people are using every day um, creates a huge amount of value. And I think that's something that's fundamentally different than the way people want to communicate at home, because in your personal life, you don't really need access to that
0: same, you know, there's data that doesn't exist in your personal life the way it does at work. Sure. So the the corporate data assets and applications are providing a context for communication that enhances productivity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I
1: think that's the long term, you know, I, I think that's Continuing to evolve, that is um, a source of long-term value for our, our users.
0: Do you think we'll con- continue to see the the rate of innovation and change going forward? I mean, I feel like like particularly in the messaging space, there was like all these like multi-billion-dollar companies created, and all <laughs> this change, and you know, um, uh, a lot of it, I guess is on the consumer side, Snapchat and Insta and all and, and the rest, but. Are we going to keep creating new media in the way that we've been or do you think it's sort of settling down now or where are we in the journey? In the enterprise
1: universe, in the work world, we're at the beginning of the journey. Yeah. I think there's going to be more evolution there. I think in the personal world, uh, you know, my guess is we're somewhere in the middle of it. You know, if you look at just a few years ago… You know, Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter didn't really exist. Right. Right? And so, you know, I think they created, you know, the Internet was, what, 15 years ago was a big wave of something that just didn't exist. And I think social media was kind of, you know, another big wave of applications and way of thinking about things that didn't really exist prior to them. Um, I think right now we're probably in the middle of that cycle and... I mean, something new is going to come out. That's history is any guide, right? <laughs> like we, something that hasn't been thought up is going to is is going to sort of reshape things down the road. But I, I think what we'll see over the next few years is sort of a continued evolution of a lot of the concepts that have already come out, rather than you know complete new ways of of
0: thinking about it. Right, and and it's not the old stuff doesn't go away. I mean, people still write letters, right? Um, it it, it I guess it's a declining share, but but email is is here to stay. Do you think? Yes, and I, I think the other part is
1: in sort of the media's desire for, you know, uh, rapid like transformation yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and a good headline, yeah. it, it's sort of poorly understood just how long it takes uh, for some of these sort of big thematic changes to really happen. Right, And if you look at email, email is still a thing that every single person has at work and will – for the, at least the next couple of decades, probably. Right. And I think the same is true, you know, when you think about, you know, voice, phone calls, that sort of, I mean, these are things where, you know, people still need to talk to each other every day. Right. And, you know, it takes a long time to, to shift. Uh, and so I think there's going to be some interesting evolution over the next, you know, years and probably decade uh, as this big transformation happens, um, you know, toward more modern communications and,
0: and toward the cloud. How do you think about um, some of the emerging, um, you know, platforms in this space? And I'm thinking, you know, Slack is something yeah. that has a lot of mindshare. And and then Facebook has this new Facebook for work, you know, kind of. Um, what do you think those guys are doing right and what are they doing wrong?
1: I think there's a couple of ways of approaching the market. You know, I think if you look at the way that, you know, a Slack or you know other companies that take more of a freemium model um, have approached it. You know, for sure you can generate a lot of traction that way. Um, I think the problem with sort of the outside-in view, where you sort of land and expand,
0: is that it's hard to ever really get to 100% penetration, right? Because you're going to have people that just won't adopt, and then they're on the out, there then their their ability to participate is limited. That's right. And then I think on the flip side, there's a lot of value
1: in having tools that are deployed sort of by definition to 100% of the people. Right. And I think if you look at our approach, it's been to be one of the tools that gets deployed to everybody Right. um, versus um, some of these others, which end up occupying more of kind of a niche place. And so, you know, when we build our products, we think about it through that lens of how do you impact 100% of of the people at a a company's day in a positive way, whereas I think some of these other tools um, look at it through a little bit different lens. Now, I think everybody would ultimately like to get to that same place, but I I think some of the things we talked about before around just human nature and kind of existing process and behaviors and all of this play into um, the difficulty in sort of moving from... Uh, sort of the fringe player into
0: the one, you know, that really moves some of the the big elements. It's a a, a really interesting observation. As I reflect on us, you know, our, in some ways, our communications platforms reflect our own internal tribal biases, you know, (laughs) like we have like sales and marketing is like in jive. Um, whereas the engineering guys are more in sort of Google groups and, and you have different people like there are some, you know, there's a Slack, uh, Island inside the UI team. And, you know, you know, you end up with this sort of, you know, you have, you have a a, a patchwork quilt of infrastructure that mirrors some of the social and departmental divisions that already exist. Uh, for sure. I mean, the average enterprise
1: has uh, a half dozen applications different discrete types of applications that get used every day. Right. And most enterprises have more than one of each of them. Right. And that, you know, just makes it difficult for people to communicate. And when you think about building teams and you think about, you know, having people on the same page, well, if they're all using different tools and they can't see each other's tools or don't know how to talk to each other, uh, you know, these are real problems that crop up uh, that, that make it difficult for people to get their work done. And so uh, I think it's a challenge for everyone. And, and as we dig in, uh, with our customers, you know, we see like definitely it's becoming more of a challenge because I think now you're getting into a tool overload place. Um, and forget it. Even if you just forget the expense for a minute, it's just nobody knows what to do. Users don't know what to use. So yeah, it ends up where they just sort of their groups use one thing and you know, there's some sort of lowest common denominator, hopefully, that
0: emerges where anyone could talk to anybody else. Right. You've tended to, um, or at least my impression is, you've tended to work with larger customers, big organizations. Um, is, um, is, the right, is, is that the right time to adopt a sort of consistent platform? Uh, or, or do you think that uh, even like younger companies would benefit more from standardization in that respect?
1: Yeah, I think younger companies would for sure, uh, you know, at the same time. I think it's like anything else; you got to pick your battles. And so, for us, we just see complexity in bigger enterprises and pain. Uh, that's something we can help solve. And right. so, I think we've tended to focus on that. But I think, uh, it, I think one of the, um, I think one of the the mistakes that gets made at smaller companies is nobody really wants to think about this stuff. They're just sort of happy to let of whatever tools evolve, evolve and show up, and that's how you end up with all this different stuff. Whereas if people stop and think about it early on, then you can probably avoid some of the problems later. Right. Chaos is the default. Chaos is the default, and yeah. look—if you're a 25-person company and everybody sits in the same room, then you know the chaos that's is no easy. big deal. Yeah. Really, yeah. it's yeah. pretty easy. But I think uh, as things evolve quickly, you know, th- then th- those problems can become bigger.
0: Right. How will the communications landscape be different at the end of 2017 than it was at the beginning? Like what what comes next and and what should people expect?
1: Well, I think you're starting to see you know, you're just starting to see the world change. I mean, you know Via filed for bankruptcy, You know they're the sort of titan of the last generation. Sure. Uh, I think the reality here is is um, there's much more of a convergence between, Uh, sort of mobile and desktop and messaging and video. I think people are finally just expecting that that they're going to get something that kind of works and kind of covers all of the bases. And so I think we're going to start seeing more of that. And uh, I also think, you know, more of these sort of consumer-inspired concepts are going to start emerging um, in the tools that people use at work every day. And we're for sure driving that trend. Uh, but, you know, other people are taking notice of that as well. And so I, I think for sure it's it's the case that uh, really for anybody at work, like, the world is getting better because it's no longer the case that, you know, IT feels they can just sort of force people to use what they tell them and they know that they've got to deliver something that's better. And so I, I think there's uh, going to be, you know, just sort of a trend of better tools Uh, people being able to communicate more effectively. And we're going to start to see that really, um, I think the lines between different tools is going to blur more and more uh, and communications role in sort of helping people understand what goes on in their business and their data and their sales. You know, all this stuff is is going to be much more cohesive. And, I mean, that's what we're driving things toward, but I think that's going to continue. I think all of these islands of different tools that really suck and are old, we're going to start to see that fade away a little bit.
0: Steve Kokinos, founder and CEO of Fuse. Very thoughtful about uh, the um, messaging diaspora that uh, we're all confronted with and um, really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, very excited about Fuse and their prospects. Uh, a big G20 Ventures uh, investment there and uh, uh, excited for him and for them. A uh, great company and, um, and really one of the, one of the great guys uh, in venture here in Boston. All right, so How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.